I don't know. This is the kind of stuff I think about a lot and like how there is this idea that you, you know, your life can always be better. And that one day, one day I'll do the things that I want to do. I'll be the person I want to be. Mm. And, and this unwillingness to look at the person you are and look at the days that you have lived as the thing that actually makes up your life. And, you know, the, th- the person you are, you can't really escape from and, and like, or not escape from, but like, you just are that person. Like you are the days of your life. That's everything that makes you up. Yeah. Um, but you can decide to look forward and like say like I'm not going to be defined by that person that I was and like I'm going to be defined by the person that I will be sort of thing. Right? Yes, I, I think that's true. But I think Cormac McCarthy sort of arguing against that here, right? Like he's saying like no matter what you are the sum of every all the days you've lived and, and your life up to that point and people just dream of this one day, one day, one day and, and fail to realize the reality of who they are. And I, I just... You know, I, I like stopped and had to mark this page when I read it because I was like, I want to return to this, you know. episode 182 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm Luke. And I'm James. And this week we discuss Cormac McCarthy's 2005 novel, No Country for Old Men. So James, uh, welcome to a bright and sunny Monday afternoon, feeling good and reading depressive depressing shit <laughs> yeah how uh how did you like this book did, did it uh did it bum you out or were you able to enjoy it i'm really curious to to know what your takeaway was from this one i i mean i don't think it really bummed me out i think that it brought up some interesting questions i think it had me thinking about some philosophical topics in ways that i hadn't before necessarily um and it was also just great revisiting a story that i was familiar with but haven't seen mm. in forever like i can't remember the last time i watched this movie but getting the source material was, you know, it always has that like extrapolating effect for certain like character moments and some of this like philosophical confrontation that's going on in the book. Like, what you know, what is the book trying to say here? I think will be a fascinating thing to, to explore through the rest of this talk. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, got a lot to say. It raises a lot of questions. And it, in many ways, I feel like the book explores it more thoroughly than the movie. But there is also a lot that's left kind of nebulous, and, and I feel like kind of up for the reader to decide where they where they come down on certain things. Yeah. I mean, to praise real quick, just to praise the movie, like I love the way that I, the things that I can remember is like how atmospheric and how they the Coens did leave you to to like stew with these characters, and like they're not. It's a very like experiential film like it's not something that's like kind of telling you it's not beating you over the head with the messaging you Mm. can kind of you can kind of parse through it yourself as as a watcher and i I appreciated it for that reason yeah so uh we should probably both say we have seen the movie neither of us had read this novel um have you read any other cormac mccarthy novels no i don't think so but i've heard i mean i've heard his name a lot and i know you, you mentioned the road a lot whenever we whenever he comes up that's the only other one from him I've read um, was The Road, and I've also seen that movie. That's one that we have definitely could cover. Um, he has several others that have been adapted, which we'll talk about when we get into his bio. 
that we could cover. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, we returned to this author. I would love to. Um, for me, the, I had a really interesting experience with this because the writing itself is being executed on such a high level. I read a quote by Saul Bellow who praised his, quote, absolutely overpowering use of language, his life-giving and death-dealing sentences. And uh, that that sort of dynamic range uh, I definitely thought was present, but I also found just the the quality of the prose to be comforting in a weird way, even though everything being described is so dark and um, sparse. I still found it like a warm bath when I was reading it. <laughs> and, was it just and, and, out of appreciation for the craft? Like, were you just like I so? Think so, like, I, I, I think I was just like I knew I was in the hands of a master who. Mm-hmm. In, in, and I don't know if you read a physical copy of this book or listened to the audiobook. A little of both, honestly. Okay, so uh, there is like weird stuff going on with his prose too. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's got a very deliberate style. The formatting of conversations and stuff, is that what you're oh, saying? Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, he doesn't, um, he has very, f- as, as little as physically possible uh, as far as uh, dialogue attribution. Like he said, she said, that kind of stuff is almost completely absent. Um, very little inter intercuts the the dialogue in this book, and he does not use quotation marks at all. Um, he also uses very few commas. He just doesn't like them. He's basically said. Um, so there, it's like he, he's just like choosing to do different things with grammar, um, and in a way that the vast majority of authors cannot get away with. Um, but he's again he, he's executing it on such a high level. Um, I, I just found it. It's like when you're in the presence of greatness, right? And and you just you can just kind of sit back and enjoy it. Um, so I had all of that going on. It's it's beautifully written, but also it, it's like the the barren uh, desert uh, locales along the border. He's describing. It was reminding me of like uh, Breaking Bad and like yeah. that that um, I don't know that that austerity sort of uh, lines up with the cold and harsh realities being described in the book and um so i was taking in all of that um but the the themes of the book seems to propose that the entire world is going to hell um people are getting worse over time um well it's and it's from the point of view of the of someone who's an elder statesman looking at the future Exactly, and that I think is very important to to consider the the point of view of Bell, right? Is the sort of the mm-hmm. main point of view of the book, and that's the sheriff Bell. Um, but I I didn't I don't agree with the take. You know what I mean? Yeah. But like I, but like I understand it, and like I I can see why you would feel that way, and I can and I think there's value in exploring that as a topic. Um, but I also just like don't agree with a lot of what was being said. Um, so, so it was a weird, it was like, a, I was, I was so happy and so comfortable and so in the presence of greatness, I was enjoying that. But then I was also mm-hmm. frustrated with how much I was finding myself wanting to argue with the book. Well, I kept getting, I kept feeling like this book was taking very conservative political views. And, and so, so there's the moments where it's like, I, I think change to a certain demographic of people is, is bad to them. Right. So as yeah. the world is changing, they're seeing this as like my, you know, my old way of life is leaving me behind and they're starting, you know, they're feeling their age of, because of that, they're feeling the mortality. And like, that's, that's something that that's the perspective of the novel. I didn't necessarily agree with it, but I enjoyed the ride that I was able to go on with it. Well, and it's not, um, it's not presented as necessarily true. 
one of the things I did end up coming to appreciate about it was Bell has a lot of doubts about his points of view. Like he, yeah. he says, like, I don't really know what I'm talking about. Um, my, you know, my wife knows better than me, he says many times. Um, and he, he it's like he has this point of view, but he ends up having to sort of I don't, I don't know if we should get into spoilers or not. I don't know. This is a pretty no, old not project. Yet, but but yeah. He, yeah. So so let's just say that like the things that happen contradict sort of some of his points of view. And he talks to several different interesting uh, people, a lot, of, a lot of them older older men too. And he gets sort of like uh, some of his views are thrown into question. And uh, um, I, I don't think he comes away thinking he has it figured out. And in fact, he kind of throws his hands in the air about not having it all figured out. I think, um, yeah, I think that's the point really and, at the end. And so to me, I I look at it and say the framing, maybe your framing's wrong, right? Maybe you're asking yeah. the wrong questions. Um, at least personally, when, when I read that. So I wanted to get your take on Westerns and, and just like, cause, cause this isn't a really like a traditional Western, right? This isn't yeah. the hero out in the West. And this that is, uh, this is like a post-Western. Um, yeah. it's interesting cause to me, this feels like the death of Westerns. It's kind of how it, I was yeah. imagining well, it's the it. modern Western, right? It's like, it's right. like, it's not no longer that idea of a Western, but it's still those settings and those themes. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it like it was embracing some of the genre, but in so many ways it deconstructs it right yeah. and, it, and it, um to me it is kind of the death of a genre that we don't see very prevalent anymore yeah um and part of it is because these these old school lawmen of the west who were maybe never even real in the way that america sort of hero worships them anyway they were borderline um, superheroes yeah there were right. periods of time where these westerns were they looked like superhero our modern yeah. day superheroes on screen yeah and and here it's like these people and these archetypes don't have a place anymore and maybe they shouldn't have a place anymore or maybe they should but it, they're, they're not sufficient or the reality just doesn't match with the sort of fantasy of what they what they are intended to be i don't know it's it's again it's asking lots of questions and not giving lots of answers but i definitely think that kind of stuff is being uh weighed because bell in many ways is that old school uh, lawmen from from a western film that you've seen yeah. or a western novel well and, and then this novel deals with like drug cartels and that's mm -hmm. like sort of what's happened to the west is, is sort of like that is that's there's something going on there there are drug cartels there's violence due to that and this is a, somebody who's seeing like the old school western that hero of the west who's always protecting everyone in his town being overcome by people who he's seeing as like you know, dealing in absolute violence and all these other things. So it's like that take on yeah. and, and, and this kept bringing you said like post Western and it made me think like, I wonder if this story, No Country for Old Men by Cormac McCarthy, like the actual novel is the basis for a lot of these movies we see that are like Sicario. Have you seen Sicario? I have not. No, it, it has. It deals a lot with the same sort of themes and it's like Denny Villeneuve and mm -hmm. it's incredible. So check that out. But um, the, it's it's so I, I, I would like to know because I don't read enough Western or post Western. I would love to know like where this where this is along that yeah. path like if this if this started a trend. Yeah, I don't know about yeah, like on the path, but I think you're you're touching on the right things and um I I do think there is a fear that permeates this book. I think it's no accident that this came out in the years following 9/11. To me this feels like a reaction to 9/11. Um it talks about America as a country and how the perception of sort of outside influences coming in and um, making things harder or being beyond the understanding of like the overwhelmed law enforcement 
mm-hmm. and, and it, so through at least that lens, it feels like a reaction to some of the knee-jerk stuff going on after 9-11. And I was reading about how some of the reviews for this book were mixed, um, uh, unlike some of his other books, which are, have a lot more gl- glowing praise. Mm-hmm. And um, a lot of the what people were talking about was like morality in his books um, seems to be very individual, uh, comes from the person rather than from like a god. And um, this book kind of plays around with that a little bit and, and like yeah. kind of asserts maybe there is sort, sort of morality that exists beyond the individual that is degrading and being attacked by like modern society. And, and sort of it sort of like lionizes the past in a way that I'm not super comfortable with. Yeah. Um, but again, it's not presented as necessarily the right thing. It's all it's always questioned. Well, that's that's the main thing for me is that like the way that it kept it would set something like that up and then tear it down. Yeah. And set something like that up and tear it down is just like it's about asking these questions and like seeing what it's, the, it's having the conversation with the reader. Yeah, I do think it's inf- interesting, like as far as I could tell, Cormac McCarthy has never publicly said what his political views are. Mm-hmm. Um, so if, if people are seeing this as conservative, you know, I think that's that's trying to appraise the author's political leanings just through the work itself and not really going off of anything he said publicly. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't I'm not saying that's wrong. <laughs> um, I, I do think that McCarthy has like a sort of nihilist point of view that permeates at least both of these books, this and The Road, um, in a way that feels apolitical it it feels like it's saying that nothing matters although that is sort of a political statement in and of itself um and uh is it is that's why i found it kind of depressing right like it's very much like a none all of this is meaningless you know life is full of despair and regret yeah you know like if you if you try and live a moral life you're just gonna wind up sad and alone yeah there was like a there's sort of a line walked where it's like anytime a morality situation a question is arises i think usually it it ends up feeling like the randomness of the world the randomness of life the like you know there's there's stuff that goes on with we'll definitely get into it but like chance and like the idea of the coin flip and fate and some of those kinds of things and then the way that like um doing good doesn't necessarily mean that good things are going to happen to you and like you know so like ultimately like none of these things really do matter and like what's socially constructed and like how how do we like grapple with that as like people who will die eventually like what you know why why should we be good why should we not be bad you know um as far as this book is concerned for for me my interpretation was just like ultimately like the randomness of life is is that like nothing is fair no i mean and i think that's nothing is fair i think um you know morality is in the eye of the beholder um i don't know there's just a lot of interesting stuff and like i feel like you could you could write essays about any one of these like assertions that we're making to try and like back it up and talk about all the ways in which the text itself interrogates that question um mm-hmm. there's just so much density of uh thematic material and uh it's 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 kind of incredible and it's it's difficult to talk about in a short podcast episode relatively um so yeah we'll do our best but um there's so much you could get into with this book and what's funny is i was reading that a lot one of the other criticisms of this book is that it's in many ways more straightforward and less thematically dense than some of his other novels 
which are even more uh, just like the kind of thing, the kind of literary works that people are debating for decades after they come out. Yeah. Um, and, and this one is considered like, yeah, not not as deep. Yeah, this does feel like something that's more uh, like generally accessible. You yeah. know what I mean? Like anyone could pick this up and read it and enjoy it on the surface level to the subtextual, like whatever yeah. you want to pull out, pull out of it is there, I think. I think it's an easier read than The Road, in my opinion, too. I think yeah. uh, it, it's more straightforward story. Um, the the prose itself is more accessible. Um, I, I my memory of the road is that the syntax and stuff is actually gets really difficult sometimes. Um, and then yeah, there's like length of sentences and like other things that that make stuff um, really complex. But um, we've we've touched on a lot of this stuff. But I I want to talk about Cormac McCarthy, the author, because I think he's fascinating. Um, he is widely considered one of the greatest living authors. Um, still alive. He's he's in his I believe he's in his 90s or close to 90s now. He was born in 1933. Oh. Um, yeah, and um, let's talk about him a little bit. Oh, uh, real quick, this book, No Country for Old Men, began as a screenplay, and so some people theorize maybe that's why it's not quite as dense and and hard to. It get does into. feel really cinematic too. It does yeah. feel like something that that would lend itself to that. Oh, and uh, I gotta put that out there too. This is one of those times where I kept being floored reading this book going i was giving way too much credit to the movie <laughs> like the movie's great like and we're going to talk about what makes the movie great but what the things that doesn't make the movie great is the what actually happens because that's all from the fucking book like so much of these scenes beat by beat what makes them great is lifted directly from this book and so much yeah. of what makes the characters amazing so much of what makes the dialogue memorable it's not even like it's been changed that much at all. It was yeah. like, I mean, like you said, originally, originally a screenplay. So it's going to lend it. Yeah, I, I think like props to him for basically coming up with the entire movie. But and we'll get to the there Coen, are changes. Like, there are some credit changes. credit. Well, credit where credits do like there's there's also something to be said for actually seeing a character like um, Shigur in in the movie is just like it's a oh, total he's like I, I i'm not trying to downplay the the value of the adaptation i think it's we're going to talk about it i think it's great yeah. but uh, i just i was underestimating um how much comes from this book and how much credit really is just like cormac mccarthy deserves for this story yeah not the not Definitely. the Coen brothers now we'll, we'll talk about what they do deserve credit for i'm sure next week but let's talk about cormac mccarthy so Cormac McCarthy was born Charles Joseph McCarthy Jr. Uh, in 1933. He is an American novelist, playwright, short story writer, and screenwriter. McCarthy has written 10 novels, two plays, two screenplays, and two short stories, spanning the Western and post-apocalyptic genres. He is well known for his graphic depictions of violence and his unique writing style, recognizable by its lack of punctuation and attribution. He is widely regarded as one of the greatest contemporary writers. Um, so there is a ton of cool stuff about this guy's life. Um, I will. It would take me 20, 30 minutes to get into all of it. So roughly, um, he was born in Rhode Island, but was raised primarily in Tennessee. He went to the University of Tennessee. Uh, he was a volunteer. <laughs> um, and then he... Go Gators. Uh, yeah. <laughs> then he dropped out to join the U.S. Air Force um, while he was stationed in Alaska for a time, became a voracious reader. He lived in, in like immense poverty throughout the majority of his life, um, chasing being a writer. He uh, 
he didn't he refused to work like meaningless jobs um, and instead pursued writing, which he did not make money for for a long time. His uh, first book was called The Orchard Keeper, which he published in 1965. Um, it got some critical uh, acclaim, uh, people noting that it sounded like the work of William Faulkner. He lived in the French Quarter in New Orleans for a while. Uh, he would go on to write a book called The Otter Dark in 1968. Again, not finding large commercial success. He then moved back to Tennessee and he wrote a screenplay for an episode of Visions, which was a drama series in the 70s, which he was nominated for two Emmys for. Um, then in 1979, McCarthy published the semi-autobiographical Sutri, which he had written over 20 years, which was based on his experiences in Knoxville, um, which uh, a critic likened to the, a doomed Huckleberry Finn. And then uh, this was sort of the big change in his career. In 1981, he was awarded the MacArthur Fellowship um, for $236,000. Uh, you know, the MacArthur, like, genius fellowship. Yeah. And he was able to research his next novel in the southwest of America, and he ended up writing Blood Meridian, or The Evening Redness in the West, 1985. And that book is well-known for its violence, and the New York Times declared it the bloodiest book since the Iliad. Although initially <laughs> wow. snubbed by many critics, the book has grown appreciably in stature in literary circles. Harold Bloom called Blood Meridian, quote, the greatest single book since Faulkner's As I Lay Dying. In a 2006 poll of authors and publishers conducted by the New York Times magazine, Blood Meridian placed third in a list of the greatest American novels behind Toni Morrison's Beloved and Don DeLillo's Underworld. So really, it was Blood Meridian that sort of got him the acclaim. Um, and then he would go on to write All the Pretty, All the Pretty Horses, which I have heard of. Um, I've never seen that adaptation, but I think it's also a movie, um, which won the National Book Award. Um, and it became a New York Times bestseller, selling 190,000 hardcover copies within six months. Uh, he then followed it up with The Crossing and Cities of the Plain, completing the Border Trilogy. So yeah, I mean he's he's had this career. He goes on to publish No Country for Old Men and The Road later, much later in his career. He's still writing. Um, he has a book that was announced in 2015, but has not come out yet. Um, unclear when it'll come out and if it'll come out. But yeah, I mean this guy uh, is is one of those like modern authors that is uh, seem to cut from the same same cloth as a William Faulkner or a Hemingway or somebody like that. Yeah. Unbelievable. I mean, I, I honestly thought he was a bit younger. So to learn that he's in his 90s, like he, he and like the fact that he like you said, this idea of the struggling actor is real. I mean, this is one of our greatest living struggling author. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and like just in general, like to to have to go as most of his life at living in poverty and then eventually create like like the next great American novel in his time. Like, yeah, it's it's pretty wild to think like how arts are viewed in this in this uh country yeah i really want to read blood meridian now that's probably the one that i i am most excited about all the pretty horses too curious about that one um he one one story i saw kind of backing up what you're talking about it, it talked about how he once got evicted from a hotel that was a 40 dollars a month hotel room that he was living in wow. because he couldn't afford to make rent yeah. so how how poor he was for a time so 
I do want to talk a little bit about his his syntax, um, just for a moment, get kind of nerdy about it. Um, McCarthy uses punctuation sparsely, even replacing most commas with and to create polysyndentons. It has been called, quote, the most important word in McCarthy's lexicon, the word and. <laughs> I will say, like, ju- just to give my experience on it when I was reading it on the physical copy, um, it was jarring. Like, I was like, it was definitely unfamiliar to me, and I couldn't figure out if he was trying to do it because it was like sort of a story being re, re- like told back to us um and i couldn't tell if he was doing something with that or if it was like because he wanted it to match like the setting and the sort of like grammatical things that like people that that his characters would be sort of like using if they were writing things down and stuff like i couldn't figure it out for a little while but after a while i i I got used to it and i actually did enjoy it for the dialogue is really i mean it's sharp right it's very you're going like line it's like he'll have a short line of somebody saying something followed by another line another line and another line yeah just back and forth and you're left to like infer who's saying what from context clues and yeah i really liked it it i mean i think it's all voice right it's all like to me to me it harkens to like what people how people actually speak and um it it feels very authentic in that way um let me read this just the sentence that it has in as an example for this language. And this is from No Country for Old Men. He left the beer on the counter and went out and got the two packs of cigarettes and the binoculars and the pistol and slung the 270 over his shoulder and shut the truck door and came back in. Like, it, there's no commas in that, what I just read. I mean, it was hard for you to just read that out loud, right? It like, is just, hard to like, read, Attempting yeah. to do that is tough. Props yeah. to the uh, narrator who was definitely putting in commas <laughs> like as yeah, he was right. reading there's a, I was noticing um because sometimes I like to listen to the audiobook while reading the physical copy and I would yeah. notice he would have these pauses where you would expect a comma to be yet there was no comma present in the text <laughs> it's just how he wanted to read it he's taking natural pauses because that's how people read you know that's how we've yeah. been trained to read for decades um so Carmen McCarthy did almost no interviews um, yet I was able to find one he did with Oprah Winfrey when she chose The Road as an Oprah book club book. Um, he, so, cool. he, so he did some interviews with her, and that was like some of the first he'd done. Um, and in fact, he, so he was married three times. And I think one of the reasons I read, I can't remember if it was his second wife or his first wife, um, ended up divorcing him, was because he kept refusing to take paying speaking gigs to come talk about his books. And he would respond with like letters that said, uh, you know, everything I knew, everything I wanted to say is in the pages of the book. And he, he didn't want to talk awesome. about it. And they were like, it's hardcore, incredibly poor. And she was yeah. like, what are you doing? <laughs> like, we need the money. Go talk. But like, he didn't want yeah. to. Um, incredibly like sort of reclusive author. But in, in his interview with Oprah, he said that uh, he prefers simple declarative sentences and that he uses capital letters, periods, and occasional comma or colon for setting off a list, but never semicolons. Uh, he does not use quotation marks for dialogue and believes there is no reason to, quote, blot the page up with weird little marks. <laughs> um, I dare you to say that to a publisher. <laughs> I know, right? When you <laughs> submit something. Um His attitude to punctuation dates to some editing work he did for a professor of English while enrolled at the University of Tennessee when he stripped out much of the punctuation in the book being edited, which pleased the professor. So, like, it's such a it's bizarre... One professor, yeah, like, he, like, enabled him, and it, he just rolled with it. He just rolled with it, and it became, like, a... Like, it's one of the key things of his of his prose that people talk about. Um, I don't know. It, that's fascinating. But one th- one fun detail I wanted to give, and then and then we can move on because I, I know it's like a lot. Um, but he's you know he's got this storied life of of writing. But um, McCarthy wrote all of his fiction and correspondence on a single Olivetti letterera 
32, typewriter. Between the early 1960s and 2009. So all on this one typewriter. That's all he uses. Wow. Um, so it's not just like this kind of typewriter. It's one typewriter. Can you can you imagine if you got a hold of one of those manuscripts that he like typed up on the actual typewriter? Like well, how, speaking, what that would be worth? Speaking of that, uh, how about the typewriter itself? So he bought the portable Olivetti Letterera 32 for $50 at a Knoxville pawn shop and typed about 5 million words over the next five decades on it. He maintained it by simply, quote, blowing the dust out of the service station hose. Book dealer Glenn Horowitz said that the modest typewire acquired sort of a talismanic quality through its connection to McCarthy's monumental fiction, as if Rushmore was carved with a Swiss army knife. His Olivetti was auctioned in December of 2009, uh, and the auction house estimating that it would fetch between $15,000 and $20,000. It sold for two hundred and fifty-four thousand dollars. <laughs> I was gonna say that seemed a little low. With proceeds donated to the Santa Fe Institute, which he now like works with, um, which is like another whole thing. Um, but this, I love this bit. McCarthy then replaced it with an identical model, bought for him by his friend John Miller for eleven dollars plus nineteen ninety-five for shipping. <laughs> Hey, he's a, he's a, he's smart, you know. Like he realized the value of that, and yeah. he was like, "Well, I'll just do it oh. again on the same thing." Yeah, I think it's cool that it, it went to charity too. So the proceeds yeah. like went to went to this you know charity. But I don't know. It, it's he's just like, yeah, this is my thing, man. So this guy does not write on he, and all correspondence. So if you want to, if like today, like there's some literary you know agent out there who has to correspond with Cormac McCarthy. You know, through the mail in which he writes up letters on his typewriter. Yeah, I hope that they're replying on a typewriter as well. <laughs> I don't know. He also has talked like he throws all kinds of shade at the idea of like hanging out with authors. He's like, he's like, I don't want to associate with authors. He prefer <laughs> he prefers to associate with uh, with scientists. He said he likes hanging out with okay. scientists. That's like at the the institute is a scientific institute. He's like the only okay. non scientist who's a member of it. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, fascinating guy. Um, not, you know, that's not for me. I like hanging out with authors. I find authors really interesting, but I also like kind of get it in some ways. Like it, I don't know. Like, well, if you're the type of person who like wants variety, you want something different than what you're actively doing. Like, you know, a scientist is pretty far from, from a writer, right. I would say. So it's like very different kind of things to talk about. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Um, he would not approve of this podcast, I don't think. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. But uh He probably doesn't like podcasts in general. I would assume he does not even know what a podcast is, would be my guess. But maybe maybe he does. I don't know. Um but okay, I, I think that's enough uh talking about him as a person. Um there, there's other little stuff that I might pepper in throughout if it comes up. But we have this whole book to talk about. So I'm gonna divide it up into three chunks of plot and we can sort of react and discuss uh what happens within each one. Let's do it. Okay, so in 1980, while hunting pronghorns, Llewellyn Moss stumbles across the aftermath of a drug deal gone awry that has left everyone dead, save a sole badly wounded Mexican who pleads with Moss for water. Moss responds that he does not have any and searches the rest of the vehicles, finding a truck full of heroin. He searches for the last man standing and finds him dead some distance off under a tree with a satchel containing $2.4 million in cash. He takes the money and returns home. Later, however, feeling remorse for leaving the wounded man and simultaneously desiring to know more of the circumstances surrounding the deal gone awry, he returns to the scene with a jug of water, only to find that the wounded man had since been shot and killed. 
When Moss looks back to his truck parked on the ridge overlooking the valley, another truck is there. After being seen, he tries to run, which sparks a tense chase through the desert valley. After escaping from his pursuers, Moss sends his wife, Carla Jean, to her grandmother's in Odessa, Texas, while he leaves his home with the money. Sheriff Ed Tom Bell investigates the, the drug crime while trying to protect Moss and his young wife. Bell is haunted by his actions in World War II, leaving his unit to die, for which he received a bronze star. Now in his late 50s, Bell has spent most of his life attempting to make up for the incident when he was a 21-year-old soldier. He makes it his quest to resolve the case and save Moss. Complicating things is the arrival of Anton Chigurh, a hitman hired to recover the money. Chigurh is a ruthless, calculating killer whose weapons of choice are a silenced shotgun and a captive bolt pistol. Okay, let's stop there. We got our three yep. main players and the setup for the book. What are your thoughts? So I just got to jump to Shigura right away just because I, I want to say, like, uh, he's not human. Yeah. He's, like, it, it, nearly not human. There's there's vulnerability moments yeah. of, like, the things that annoying things that humans have to deal with, like broken arms and, like, bullet holes yeah. and things like that. But other than that, this person, like, represents just, like, a force of nature, like, right. evil incarnate and everything. And that's basically, like, inferred within the pages, I would say. He is the fas- um, he is the manifestation of everything wrong in society, I think, <laughs> in yeah. some ways, in some ways. Well, he's, like, a full-on sociopath, like, mm-hmm. psychopath, really. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's really interesting to see. And it is it's a compelling character. Really interesting to, to – scary and interesting to read about. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but did this this character was also giving me not not quite the same, but because we read the stand earlier this this year, the walking man or the man in black, mm-hmm. like that that character, Randall Flagg, um, Randall Flagg, like the, the incarnation, like the like he sort of represents kind of similar things and they're like Western vibes to both of them. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and I just kept I kept thinking about that uh, character as we were getting sugar and then sugar took it way further. You know, sugar, I think, is is like maybe more terrifying than than someone like that because it is so grounded there's a yeah. grounded character that absolutely exists somewhere in the world maybe yeah this sort of hitman like sociopath i mean there's so much you could talk about with this character he is completely ruthless he has no empathy and he uh he is very caught up in the idea of like force of will he has this code where he doesn't allow anyone to be his enemy because if they are even remotely his enemy, he will kill them. So he has right. no enemies because they all are dead. There's this, there's this scene that we get where a, uh, a character is like, just like messing with him at a bar or something. Yeah. And he tries to ignore it. And then the, it's like, he's can, he has, he can do two things in the situation. He can ignore it. Or what ultimately happens is they go outside to fight and he kills them. Yeah. And then eventually like goes to, prison i believe at one point i don't know i thought that might be even be setting up the start of the novel where he's in the handcuffs um oh, okay yeah i thought that might have been setting that up i'm not 100 sure but i mean that's i mean when we first meet him he's in handcuffs in a police department and yet he like the cop who has him is so unprepared for what who he has right yeah. like he doesn't it's like realize a hannibal lecter yeah. hannibal lecter type character where it's like calculating like he will overpower you just like yeah. In well, more more mentally, like he'll just like figure out a way to just I, I don't know. He's just this force sheer of force of will yeah. that you can't you can't contend with. And like these cops are like, oh yeah, I got it handled. No, in no way had he, had they had it handled. Yeah. He like gets out of the, the like he like jumps over the handcuffs and like chokes this person out and yeah. kills him. 
That's yeah. a police officer too. So it's like that's a statement, right? If you're willing to kill cops, that's a that's a big. You're a different sort of criminal than breaking into homes or something. And like it's that. not just that he kills that cop, steals the cop's car, uses the cop's car to pull over somebody to kill that person and steal their car, which he then right. goes on to like kill another person and swap cars again, like just to create multiple layers of separation so that the stolen cars can't be used to track him. I don't know. It's it, it, he, there's no he, he. It doesn't matter. He doesn't care about just killing random people too. Um, and then I think it's very telling that he has this like cattle killing device because that is it, how he treats a lot of these ki- like kills is that it's just like a slaughterhouse. Like it, it's something that is meaningless to him. Like he, he views them as cattle who, you know, he has ultimate power over. Yeah. Very interesting because it's like we, we try to f- figure out the motivations throughout um, for sugar because like you're like, OK, so like is like obviously he wants this money that we'll eventually learn about, but we don't know like why, like, cause we can see that like nothing motivates him except like, just like butchering people. Yeah. He just seems like he has, he has this code and he kills people. And then like, we come to find out more about him later, but yeah, he's been, he's, been, he's been hired by somebody, right. which is kind of nebulous. So somebody knows yeah. what he wants, but like what he would, what drives him, but he's a loose cannon. Like we immediately hear later that he basically goes off book and just starts murdering everybody including people who are on his side ostensibly so he, he's just a force of nature out there uh, who's been unleashed on this but yeah let's talk before, about our, we have two other yeah, characters to talk about before shigur was even introduced yeah. i was really invested in moss's story right yeah. like going like finding these this like um like cartel deal that went bad or whatever and then like the person that he like is uh, you know eventually feels bad for but leaves there when they're asking for water and um when he goes back though that's when it really like was was hooking me in like he's like trying to sneak over and then he realizes as he gets close like how dumb this is and then right when he's like getting ready to turn around he he sees that like the person's been killed and he like sees somebody up by his truck where he left his truck and then just like very tense scene and then he yeah. has to like escape and um his obviously like i found it pretty unrealistic that he would that someone like this uh, but it was set up well enough to where i didn't i didn't really bat an eye at it but this idea of him like going back to bring this person water when clearly that person would probably be dead but just like the morality within this person which is sort of the the some of the themes of the book there is within moss his morality forces him to go back and try to do the good deed here and give water to and and that's the you know question like is that is that his mistake like should he have been more heartless you know maybe he would have been safer if he had been um but i i absolutely love the introduction to llewellyn um him he's out on this hunt and all the descriptions of the process of hunting and the like the specific details of tracking and of the the you know uh the environment which is funny because it talks about how there's not a lot of descriptions of environment but the ones we get are incredible um the, yeah. just you know I, I felt so immersed and so present in the scene um, and then he's so careful and calculating without talking about it, like how he's being careful and calculating. He just is. And we see him like when he first finds these trucks, he just watches them for like a really long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he's, he's so careful with the way he approaches. And and um, you can I think there's like one reference about another like so, he hasn't done this since he was like a long time ago in another country. And that's the first like indication we get that he's a veteran. Um, which I think is very important that like multiple characters are veterans in this book. Um, and I, I, I just thought this, he's such an interesting protagonist because he essentially is the protagonist. Although you could argue maybe bell is the, the real protagonist of the book, but um, 
you know, it, he he's going to be put against Shigur, right, in these Battle of Wills. And uh, Llewellyn is this, you know, he's, again, kind of an archetypal character. He's this, like, frontiersman, uh, this veteran who has, you know, the tracking ability and the, he's like this this crack shot with a rifle and all this stuff, um, mm. which I think is, you know, it, it, you know, and then you you put that up against who Shigur ends up being. And then you you include a bunch of police who are completely overwhelmed and overmatched. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I, I thought a great character to, to put against Shigur. Um, we also get Tom Bell, who's the, the sheriff. Yeah. Who, a lot of the story is like framed around this and you talked about veterans like he he constantly i think most chapters start with bell mm -hmm. sort of um in the present yeah think, like a first think, person like a, like almost like a diary or something yeah. I, unclear what it is he's written but it feels like a like a diary like a diary entry yeah. and a lot of times it has to do with like older like his i know like his his grandfather or something was a was a sheriff and he yeah. had come back from war as well and like he's sort of framing the whole world in this like no country for old men like the title states like yeah. this like it's like the world is changing and that's where those sections really can set up like how how the world is changing and like this story is unfolding before us kind of showing if it is or if it, you know if it's changing for the better or for the worse like yeah what what to believe and what's good and what's evil that kind of thing and you know i can't help but but interpret a lot of this as internalized racism in some ways i'm not necessarily yeah. saying that's true of cormac mccarthy but it might be um but definitely this character definitely this character for yeah for so like people you know people in the south in this in this time period like especially like they talk about like his uh well it's set in the 80s but it was written in 2000 so i think that's also interesting to exactly note, yeah. right <laughs> and, but, but like when he talks about like his grandfather or something like that yeah. too there's like talk of like fighting native americans i think yeah. at some points and like stuff like that well and it is and repeatedly like, set up with the idea of this us versus them it talks about these people a lot and and it's always like said as just criminals but i don't know about you man i was always reading into yeah. like non-white people every like, i mean anytime they talked about mexicans i was like is this is this the fact that they're mexicans or because they're associated with the cartel you know there yeah. were some mexicans that showed up within the story that were also treated like they were you know not the like as important as the white character yeah. and some and like at least from the perspective of the characters within the story like right. when a spoiler like moss eventually goes to mexico i felt like there was a vibe going on where like moss didn't necessarily respect mexican people right. as much as he might have respected white people in you know in america yeah that's you know probably true <laughs> um it's it's weird because like you know he's such a great writer that you could maybe say that this is all done deliberately he's trying to examine these very real um ideas that he sees around him and um but i i just don't know if i can quite buy that he's totally impartial because like the messaging behind the entire book yeah seems to be the idea of like these uh, these others are coming into America and and making mm -hmm. it worse, um and yeah. and you know like I keep thinking of an author like James Baldwin we covered, and how just fundamentally a book like you know uh, if Bill Street could talk when when viewed against this book uh, how much it this book feels like propaganda right like this feels like the kind of thing that would prop up the idea of militarized police. Like we have to, we have to right. be ready for Shigur, but like Shigur is a fictional character. Like, you know, and, and even if he isn't, there's like, it's one in a million that you're going to see somebody like this. And, and instead you're having Humvees and, and, you know, giant machine guns and all kinds of other stuff for, for, 
you know, minor traffic arrests and shit like that. Yeah, this is reminding me of one thing I wanted to say, because I actually have been to El Paso within like like right before COVID. I went on vacation to visit a friend of mine who was living in El Paso and I saw the border wall and I like I was right there um, like and, and, you know, it's very different from where I'm where I'm from. So like getting to see like the mountains, it's a lot of like desert location, very small shrub uh, bushes and things like that. Um, num- one, number one thing, people who are residents of El Paso were talking to me about how like it's one of the most safe cities in the U.S. If you look like statistically, because I know like some people would probably go and be worried about something happening with Mexico, like the cartel is so nearby and all this other stuff. But um, it's not like that. So I don't want that to be like a a thought that like the border is just like chaos or anything. It's not like that at all. But this book would kind of have you believe that in some ways, yeah. you know, like, like you're saying like, oh, border, it, it's so it can be so sketchy at the border. There's like, you know, war criminal drug drug cartel people like right outside your door and stuff. And um, it was a great environment. I liked being there. And uh, it, it was just like and also like I was getting to like visualize like that sort of area that I've been to when I was reading this book. So I enjoyed that. Yeah, that's cool, man. Um, I, I do want to talk about Llewellyn and and uh, Carla Jean. Um, they have some yeah. of the coolest conversations. Like the, it's their relationship is so interesting to me. Um, it is it's one of those things. It's like it's borderline toxic. Like it seems like it's very questionable. Yet it it seems to work for them, and it does seem like there's genuine love there underneath it all. And Llewellyn mm-hmm. um, and her like seem like they they have a really hard time communicating with each other, um, but it, it just feels so true. I guess is where I ultimately came down on like this feels like real people, and yeah. uh, a, a real relationship that you know exists outside of the public eye, and it's we're putting it in a book, so we're bringing it in there. But yeah. Right. Yeah. Behind closed doors, I think people would have you in public. People have you believe that their relationship is a lot cleaner with less fighting and things like that. But, you know, people fight in relationships and things like that. And it does feel real in that way. You know, I don't think I think they're a little more antagonistic than they necessarily. Maybe they both need to go to see therapy or something and like they could work on some things. But like you said, it felt real, especially for like what was trying to be portrayed as the 80s. Yeah. Well, it's also hilarious. I don't know. Like when 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 uh, when Llewellyn shows up at home with the bag and she's like, what's in that bag? And he's like, it's full of money. And it's just like, it's so <laughs> funny because like, she's like, oh, that'll be the day. Like, you know, like the, the, these exchanges are so good. And then just like the idea of like, that is what it is. And he could just say that because he knows that she'd never believe it. And no one yeah. would. So I don't know. So funny. I, I'm really excited to talk about like how things end up for those two characters. as Well, well let's move into more plot then. So Carson Wells, a rival hitman and ex-Special Forces officer who is familiar with Shigur, is also on the trail of the stolen money. After a brutal shootout that spills across the Mexican border and leaves both Moss and Shigur wounded, Moss recovers at a Mexican hospital while Shigur patches himself up in a hotel room with stolen supplies. While recuperating, Moss is approached by Wells, who offers to give him protection in exchange for the satchel. After recovering and leaving the hospital room, Shigur finds Wells and murders him, just as Moss calls to negotiate the exchange of the money. After answering Wells' phone, Shigur tells Moss that he will kill Carla Jean unless he hands over the satchel. Moss remains defiant and soon after calls Carla Jean and tells her that he will meet up with her in a motel in El Paso. Let's start with uh, let's start with Wells, who, by the way, 
I don't like having a character named Bell and a character named Wells. It's it's very like visually hard to to differentiate. Something them. about f- four letter, four to five letter like last names started like Bell, Moss, Wells, Ellis. There's a lot of like shorter yeah. names, and it, it, people are called by their last name a lot. And it was like, yeah, at first it took me a little bit to like really nail down who the characters were. Yeah, but by this point, like halfway through, I was definitely familiar. I found Wells to be really interesting, right? Like he's this other kind of hitman yeah. who has a d- whole different operating principle. Seems much more driven by greed he's ex-special forces and he comes in he's very cocky but he's very Mm -hmm. he's very intelligent he seems very capable and he's got this plan like i can i can take out sugar for you i love that when we so so my introduction to the character first of all i wanted to say like i don't know how much you remember of the movie i really don't remember all that much i remembered like sugar and some of the major details Mm -hmm. i remember it pretty well how much Okay, so I didn't remember a character like Wells or anything like that. Really? So, yeah, I remember. Um, when Wells shows up, I immediately was like, oh, there's no way this guy can compete with with Sugar. Mm-hmm. Like, I knew that right off the bat. But then they, he gives you this great scene where Wells goes after Moss and ends up, like, cornering Moss and showing, like, he is extremely capable and he is very intimidating. Yep. Um, but then ultimately, like, just no match for just the sheer force of will, like we've said, that Sugar is. Yeah, Sugar Sugar definitely gets the best of him. Their scene together where uh, Sugar executes him, I-, I thought was just, like, so memorable. Unbelievable. Unbelievably yeah. good. Um, I wanted to read a section from that part because for those of you who have seen the movie and you're wondering, like, why why should I bother with the book, right? Like, what what do you get in the book that you don't get in the movie? I have an example of that here. So this is uh, talking about Wells as he's, a, as he's about to get shot by uh, Shigur. He did close his eyes. He closed his eyes and he turned his head and he raised one hand to fend away what could not be fended away. Shigur shot him in the face. Everything that Wells had ever known or thought or loved drained slowly down the wall behind him. His mother's face, his first communion, women he had known. The faces of men as they died on their knees before him. The body of a child, dead in a roadside ravine in another country. He lay half-headless on the bed, with his arms outflung, most of his right hand missing. Shigur rose and picked up the empty casings off the rug and blew into it and put it in his pocket and looked at his watch. The new day was still a minute away. So, he had been counting time up to this point. Because he had like basically seen this bullet hole in a calendar, um, and, and, and another, you know, when he was like looking at this dead woman, and he was like, "Well, I'm a minute away from the day of the bullet hole, which is when, you know, apparently I'm going to die." And then was, I think it's fascinating that he dies a minute before, right? Like just before the fulfillment of that of that fated sort of prophecy. Because because like I, I mean we've said it a little bit, but Sugar is very much a sort of a believer in fate because yet ha- we have this scene where he goes into a convenience store and like you know, this guy's life is on the line. Oh, based the on coin, coin flip. flip. Oh man. What is yeah. one of my favorite scenes on like any media, like just incredibly yeah. good. And so much yeah. of it is right on the page uh, that exactly, then yeah. makes it to the movie. Yeah. So, so this character like seeing the calendar with a bullet hole is like for him to th- see that as a sign and to think like, okay, that's a faded, like that's important. That's like, like it's just like, so it makes for such an interesting character because yeah. it's like, and Shigur- he's, he's like beholden to hate to fate. But like at the same time, you know, like you said, he 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 does it before the prophecy would actually be 100 percent fulfilled because yeah. it's like right before. So it's like Shigur is asserting dominance over even fate. Like in that fate. moment, he's like, yeah. I'm going to rob this moment of the fated, you know, outcome. 
I don't know. It's really fascinating. And then, yeah, I love the idea of this guy's life, you know, on the wall draining down. And, and we oh, get this, so we get this moment of revelation about this dead child. And what, what is your take on that? Uh, that moment? Like, why is that included? Yeah, I'm not sure. I, I kind of felt like it was something that was important to Wells, obviously, like whether it was like a dead, like relative or someone he like regretted killing or something, you know what I mean? Something that stuck with him in that way. That was my take. Yeah, I think this is a child who he regretted either killing or doing something that resulted in his death. And I think the reason we get that moment is this is insight into why this man became a hitman. And like what what was the thing that set him down the path of becoming someone who is able to execute all these people? Um, because he's yeah. killed many, many people. It's a bad dude, right? Like we 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 you right. know, we know that. I think that's the moment, and that's why we get this just little detail that is kind of just given to you and not really explained. But mm-hmm. uh, I think you can extrapolate out a and, lot from it. And like you said, that that is the advantage to to this medium, right? right? Like so, when we when the when we see it on film, it's it's shocking and it's like brutal and everything. But the moments that Cormac McCarthy is able to, to create right there, where he's like, oh, his first communion. We're seeing the flashes of his life as he probably did right before he died, and like. The way that just evokes like so much like humanity is like yeah. it, it's like really hard to pull something like that off in film. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's that's the the strength of fiction. So yeah, you can look forward to stuff like that if you if you wanted to read the book, <laughs> which I recommend doing. Um, so yeah, let's. Talk, I mean, there's so much violence, right? Like, and the the it's so thrilling this back and forth cat and mouse game between Shigur and the Wellen. Um, in and out of hotel rooms, you know, you got the you got the bag being like passed between vents, which I couldn't believe was a detail out of the book. It seemed like such a movie thing, yeah. But it's right there Very in the book again, yeah. Um, all this stuff that goes down with with Shiger and the trading of the rooms and the you know creeping in the and tracking executing device. people, the tracking yeah. device. I don't know, man. It's so well done, um, and it's so expertly when written. when Shiger when Shiger makes it into the room where Moss is eventually, and the shootout happens, like. Moss is under the bed and realizes like he's totally fucked and he just like decides to roll out and, and pull the gun on Shigur. And then he hasn't thought anything through and he tries to run down the stairs and run yeah. away. But by the time he gets far enough away, another moment where his mercy like, is, you know, the thing that kills him, right? Yeah. Or it leads to his eventual def- yeah. downfall. He had, a sh- he had a chance to kill him right there. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, he's getting shot in the back while he's running away and, and like he's just like running into the desert basically. And then like trying to run to like Mexico. Yeah. Uh, just a wild very tense those scenes that like play out very similarly in the movie like yeah. if i remember correctly and and there's just so much carnage and then i don't know about you but it it was interesting to see these police it always felt like they were showing up like two crime scenes ago you know like yeah. like it's like oh they're just now getting to that guy he killed we've already gone on to like six other crimes since then yeah um so it did feel very like they were just like you know so overwhelmed overmatched they had no chance of catching up to it it was like they were so far yeah. behind i loved when they finally figured out like the the cattle uh killing device mm-hmm. uh when they finally figured that out cormac mccarthy in the text had to keep being like remember the police don't know this yet. <laughs> yeah you do you know this but the police still hadn't figured this out and i just love those moments where and, and then eventually when they figure it out um it's just so brutal. What a brutal like thing to do, and like yeah. uh, the way that it looks like a bullet wound, but it doesn't leave any. There's nothing left behind, and it doesn't go all the way through. Yeah. So there's, it's just it like, does, it, would be such a hard thing to figure it out. It does remind me of one of the things that I actually really liked was the interaction between the different sheriffs. 
Bell whenever he would mm-hmm. interact with other and other law enforcement, uh, you know, and again, like I recognize that this is all sort of romanticized, um, but this is this is a Western in a lot of ways. So that's kind of why they have these little like back and forths. And one of the things that you just made me think of was how he didn't want to like give a give it away to the guy. He's like, you just think yeah. about it. You'll figure it out, you know, and it was yeah. kind of like he knew that this would be like a fun puzzle for the other guy to figure out. I don't know, like rather than just share the information. I almost felt like, yeah, he wanted to like, like have a one up over this guy kind of like, he still wanted to be like more in the know than this. Really? Guy. Cause I got it more of like, Hey, I have the answer to this crossword, but you'll get there. And when you do, it'll be worth it. I don't want to give it to you. Like, I, I think yeah, he wanted that's to like, pretty morbid. That's pretty fucked. If that was the case. That's what know? I got though. Like, yeah. And, and um, Oh, the other scene I loved was, I think it was him and another sheriff it was him and another uh, police officer. I don't know. I forget who it was, but they were on horseback going to the scene after the drug deal and they're like following the the different tracks and he talks about the night tracks versus the day tracks with the with the truck and um it was so old school right like the idea of these two police officers on horseback tracking like truck tracks i don't know it's really really um i don't it, it's that old school style versus the new you know chaos <laughs> on display right. here well, and there's like a one of those like preambles before the chapter starts where Bell's like sort of in the modern day thinking about the the 80s where he's talking about he's thinking about like technology and is it good if technology is given like newer technology is given to the police and stuff and how like it's like he's worried that like it'll trickle down to like normal people and then normal people have deadlier weapons and and like different kinds of technology and like yeah. again pushing back against like any change and in, in in that way yeah one of the, and, and there's a couple of times where bell says shit that just like really gets me frustrated um like yeah. one one example is him talking about people with green hair and bones in their noses which bones in the nose is, is very racist like phrasing yeah um, for one it's also just for the sure. kind of shit i heard a lot growing up like that like green hair was somehow a sign of like the declining morality of the youth of America. Um, And I know that he might be doing it for that very specific reason of like, this is the kind of shit these people say Um, in the, in the eighties, for sure, especially in the eighties. And this kind of guy would say, Um, but it just, it frustrates me because I'm like, it's so it's such a like superficial thing to worry about. It's so old school. It's like yeah. the oldest of old school. And, and then like, the other thing was the decline. How it all of this begin begins as soon as you start being uh, okay with people not saying sir and ma'am anymore. Yeah, I hate that kind like, of that's shit. Like yeah. that's like that's the, like the the seed of all evil is that. Yeah. Yeah, that just frustrates the hell out of me. So again, it's like these little details that were kept coming up that made me like repulsed in a way of like that idea is so maddening to me. But I was still having such a good time reading the book. Like I, I'm, I'm really struggling to like figure out how much I actually well, this like this thing. book. Yeah, it's well, weird. I, I think I know where I land personally, yeah. but I understand what you're saying about the, the because it is troubling and it is it is annoying to have to read something like that. But you know that those people are like that. Yeah. Like that is true. But to life but is Cormac McCarthy like, one of those people? And is he saying that this is the way to go? And I don't know. I can't tell. Sure. From this book. He's a 90 year old man. So yeah. it's like in the 80s he was. You know what? No, but he wrote this in 2005. Oh, okay. So then, yeah. I mean, like, so it wasn't that long ago. I really feel like this book was written as a response to 9-11, right? Where it became very America, like, first, and all these foreigners are are coming here and attacking us, and that feels... Well, he really is an old... At that point, he's an old man. In 2005, he's he's an old man, and, like, I wonder... I, I don't know. Honestly, like, you know... I think some of him, some of him has to be in this book. I'm sure that he believes in some of these things here and there. Yeah. He, it's well. at least questions that he is grappling with, because again, all of these things are not set up and then not 
you know, interrogated. Counter, exactly. You know, they, they are. And they're not just presented as the, the whole truth. Like, Bell says, like, but what do I know? And, like, I'm just an old man, and, like, I don't know anything. And, like, he says stuff like that a lot, you know? Um, yeah. So, I, anyway. I do like the willingness, the willingness to sort of question it rather than just saying, like, this is how things are. Yeah. You know, because I think that that's the point. I'll give, I give McCarthy the, the benefit of the doubt in that way, that at least, like, he seems like the kind of person that, like, with pre when presented with, like, realistic information he would probably be willing to like see both sides instead of just being like no this is the old way of doing things mm -hmm. this is how i've always done it so this is how it's going to be oh one more i have to, to to talk about the survey anecdote which first off i don't even know if i believe but second off it just seems like it has so many ways you can shoot holes on it he gives this anecdote about the, yeah. how there was a survey given to students in like the 30s um it was world war ii yeah like right right Bef around i think it was yeah, before or maybe or around the start of it before america was in it about like what was troubling them in school and all the responses were about like not having enough paper or like uh someone was said something mean to me or like it was very like stupid yeah cheating on a test cheating on a test like yeah. yeah and then they gave the same survey to kids today and it was like rape and murder and drug use and all this stuff and this was like yeah. presented as as just the sign of the declining morality of and i will say in the book's defense Later, when he talks to his uncle, his uncle gives an account of life in those times that is very different from what we hear there, right? About yeah, that's the uh, thing, yeah. right? They're always looking through rose-tinted rose glasses yeah. back in the past. Exactly, and so like I, I, I grant that that is being dealt with um, in a way that interrogates that. But that moment, I was just so frustrated because like there's so many things that you know, like who was being surveyed what schools are we talking about here like what did what did these students actually feel comfortable talking about was it okay to complain about exactly you know could you even mention the word rape was that something that people could talk about at that time in the way that we do today with the taboos in society that time would a child be able to tell an adult that something like that had happened and were they only like what were they only you know surveying certain schools you know which like yeah. you know anyway very frustrating, um, especially, you know, especially when like there's not you don't get the actual data to look at. And someone just th trots out some anecdote like that. It frustrates the hell out of me. Um, anyway, uh, not super important, but it is that it's the kind of stuff that keeps coming up in these little s sections that like forces you to think about it. Um, OK, let's get the final bit of, of summary and then we can just kind of wrap up the book. So Carla Jean decides to inform Sheriff Bell about the meeting with uh, Llewellyn and its location. Unfortunately for her and her husband, this call is traced and provides Moss's location to some of his hunters. Later, Sheriff Bell goes to the hospital to identify Moss's body, murdered by a band of Mexicans who are also after the drug deal cash. That night, Shigur arrives at the scene and retrieves the satchel from the air duct in Moss's room. He returns it to its owner and later travels to Carla Jean's house. She pleads for her life and he offers her to flip a coin to decide her fate but she loses and Shigur shoots her. Soon after, he is hit by a car, which leaves him severely injured but still alive. After bribing a pair of teenagers to remain silent after the car accident, he limps off down the road. After a long investigation that fails to locate Shigur, Bell decides to retire and drives away from the local courthouse, feeling overmatched and defeated. At the end of the book, Bell describes a dream he experienced after his father died. In the dream, Bell was riding his horse through a snow-covered pass in the mountains. As he rode, he could see his father up ahead of him carrying a moon-colored horn lit with fire, and he knew that his father would ride on through the pass and fix a fire out in the dark and cold 
and that it would be waiting for him when he arrived. Okay, so let's back up here because one of the like craziest moments in this book and in the movie, Llewellyn dies so unceremoniously. Um, yeah. But it's it Off is page in the book. it is very different in the book. Uh, I will grant yeah. that because the he he picks up this hitchhiker. Uh, who doesn't ever get named. I don't think they ever actually know each other by name. Um, she's young. I think she's like 15. And um, he picks her up and they have this interaction. And he talks to her about her future. She wants to go to Hollywood, California, California yeah. and like start her life over. And he ends up giving her all of the money um, because he has this money. He doesn't know what to do with it. So he's going to give it to her. And he has this like moment of like connecting human to human. He intends to go to Carla Jean. That's that's where he's like said that he is still intending to go. And they have this sort of final heart to heart. Um and this is then followed immediately with him being dead. Like he's the next scene we yeah. get is the police responding to him being he's been killed. One of the things that I wanted to say though with that whole interaction with the girl, the hitchhiker that he picks up is like there the he's seeding this idea of like is he going to cheat on Carla? Yeah. Is he going to like have sex with this young 15 year old? Cause there's a lot of like flirting going yeah. on. She wants to like stay and drink beer with him and stuff. Yeah. And she's like, stay in my room. And he decides he had, like, he makes the moral decision to, to walk away mm -hmm. and say like, no, 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 I don't want to, you know? And so like in that way we see that character and that's the last decision we see that character make. And this entire time. And then, and then like tragically, like you said, the next scene is um, we're getting the perspective of, them having been mowed down. We basically were just told like, yeah, no, they were killed in a, yeah. in like a, and not by sugar. Cause we just like some random guys, yeah, random. Well, they can't, they were, you know, we know that they were somewhat after the right. money. They were like tracking him somehow and like came after him. Uh, and then the, the, the part that's like heartbreaking is like this idea that like gets picked up by the, by the media. And they run with is like, he was like ran away with, you know, it looks like he ran away with this young 15 year old girl, uh, with all the money and everything like that. And, his they, they we get the perspective from his wife and she just of course doesn't want to believe it but ultimately like what is it what does it look like and uh he was just doing his best to like save this this hitchhiker he was doing right by her and then made the decision to to go back to carla and like he wanted his old life back he was sick of all the things they were having to, they were having to go through and then they're just yeah mowed down like th this idea of life not being fair and the randomness of life just continues to to permeate this novel and then we get into that with Shigur in a second as well yeah um i i want to touch on this conversation they have because it's speaking to the exact same things that you're talking about there and i think it's this is one of the more fascinating bits of thematic uh writing in my opinion in the book so this is Llewellyn uh, speaking with his hitchhiker he picked up. He looked at her. After a while, he said, It's not about knowing where you are. It's about thinking you got there without taking anything with you. Your notion's about starting over, or anybody's. You don't start over. That's what it's about. Every step you take is forever. You can't make it go away. None of it. You understand what I'm saying? I think so. I know you don't, but let me try it one more time. You think when you wake up in the morning yesterday don't count. But yesterday is all that does count. What else is there? Your life is made out of the days it's made out of. Nothing else. You might think you could run away and change your name, and I don't know at all. Start over. Then one morning you wake up and look at the ceiling and guess who's laying there. So I, I really like that. Like th this, I, I don't know. This is the kind of stuff I think about a lot and like how... There is this idea that you, you know, 
your life can always be better and that one day, one day I'll do the things that I want to do. I'll be the person I want to be. Mm. And, and this unwillingness to look at the person you are and look at the days that you have lived as the thing that actually makes up your life. And, you know, the, th- the person you are, you can't really escape from and, and like, or not escape from, but like, you just are that person. Like you are the days of your life. That's everything that makes you up. Yeah. Um, but you can decide to look forward and like say like I'm not going to be defined by that person that I was and like I'm going to be defined by the person that I will be sort of thing. Right? Yes, I, I think that's true. But I think Cormac McCarthy is sort of arguing against that here. Right. Like he's saying like no matter what you are the sum of every all the days you've lived and, and your life up to that point and people just dream of this one day, one day, one day and, and fail to realize the reality of who they are. And I, I just. You know, I I like stopped and had to mark this page when I read it because I was like, I want to return to this, you know. Yeah, we do get and we kind of get something along these lines with Shigur as well when he talks about like every moment. I think it's when he's killing Wells. Every moment in in Wells life leads Mm -hmm. up to the moment where he's sitting there in front of him about to be killed by a bullet. So every decision he made, every turn he made, everything he did in his life led to that specific moment. And so it's like, was that fate? Was that your decision making? Was that, yeah. you know. And he returns said, to that with uh, Carla Jean when he goes to kill yeah. her and he talks and he ends up. It's interesting because he it's like the only moment of slight mercy that we see is that Shigur grants her a, a coin flip right. when he wasn't planning to. And I think that's mm-hmm. he actually feels bad because she says, like, what did I do to deserve this? And he's like, you didn't do anything. And the only yep. reason he's there is because of Llewellyn. Like, I promised your husband I would kill you. And so that's exactly. why I'm here. He had the opportunity to save her. And he was like, no, he thought that he could handle Shigur mm-hmm. and save her and do everything. And ultimately, like, his decision led to her dying. Yeah, but Shigur gives her the coin flip, yet she loses it. It fails. Yeah. yeah. Um, Life's not fair. But then the best part about all of this is that he jumps in a car and then it almost immediately gets struck by a vehicle. Gets plowed into. Driving in the so car. it's that like faded chance, right? Like this. But I, I, in the, um, one of the or differences, one of the differences we'll talk about in the in the movie is I think it's more unclear whether or not he survives. But the implication I get here is that he does in the book, at least. Um, well, I mean, he goes and gets like a he he splints his arm. He goes and gets like painkillers and stuff, and he goes and cleans it in the bath. We see eventually. Yeah, it, right? I think so. Cleans that's not the out. that's not the bullet wounds we're talking about. I, the reason I I thought that the stuff where he like goes and talks to the guy about the money, I thought that was after chronologically because we get like we get this like this happens and then we get like a we go back in time to the Carla Jean stuff. I thought. Gotcha. I don't know. I could be wrong about that, but my my reading of it was that. Shigur lives on past past this moment and that's why bell is still searching for him right like there was no body or anything. yeah no i think him. i think he definitely lives on past where, this. i just don't know I, about the order of the scenes like you're yeah saying. my memory of the movie is that it's more unclear whether or not Shigur gets away and survives um maybe i'm wrong gotcha. maybe maybe when i, I think, revisit yeah, I think it i we'll, have a different we'll, we'll, memory i think i remember very distinctly there's like a last shot of him but we'll see well, he definitely gets away but like but, he has like such a gnarly like compound fracture. It's like he could die from yeah. infection or something. I don't know. But it, anyway, regardless, um, I would assume he probably would live just because this guy's fucking so tough and everything. Like he's the Terminator. Yeah, he's the Terminator. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like it's interesting that after this moment of like, is this moment of mercy what leads to this crash? Like I, I don't know. Like, and I don't think Cormac McCarthy knows. I think it's just like the right. questions are there. I think that's why it's there. Yeah. So that there's like that ambivalence. It's like it's like. 
you know, you have to decide what you think. Was it fate that he was always going to get hit, hit by a vehicle? Is he is he again showing the randomness of the universe? Or and is this some sort of comeuppance? It's, yeah. yeah, there's a lot to be talked about there. So I wa- we got to talk about Uncle Ellis because I, I really liked his conversation with Ellis who he is a character who really throws a lot of the shit that Bell has been saying into question. Yeah. Ellis brings up about how, you know, I could tell you some stories about your father who you think is this great man who, you exactly. know, would handle everything better than than you would. Um, and he's like, no, no, don't do that. You wouldn't do that. You know, and he like doesn't even want to hear it. Um, and then he's like, he talks about like all the young people that died um, back in the wars, you know, World War Two. it sounds like he's talking about basically talking about like America's sins and how America has a lot of you know, stuff to answer for and a lot of yeah, I mean, like, assorted the, history that that I think Bell likes to ignore. There's also a really interesting uh, story that he gives, and I think it's about himself or maybe maybe Bell's father. But um, it's the story about in World War Two, he like picks up like a he picks up like a machine gun and he like sh- he's just shooting down like Germans or something like that. And then ultimately, like he gets like a Medal of Honor or something. That, like that, that. So that's Bell telling the story of how he got a Medal of Honor. He got this Bronze Star, oh, okay. and so he's con- he's confessing to Ellis about his this moment of cowardice, and how mm-hmm. his entire life he's been trying to like make up for that. And I, I thought Ellis well, the, specifically yeah. the 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 medal and like how he wanted to reject it. Yeah. But then basically America telling him like, no, you're going to receive this yeah. to cover up for all these atrocities to make it look like it was worth something. Like that moment had meaning because you were a hero and and it's like all those people died due to somebody's orders you know ultimately somebody ordered them to be in that position probably yeah and i I think it also just this this talks about the idea of like the america that we that people believe in and that people see versus the reality and what is actually going on and i think ellis is trying to say like your shame is not completely unique to you because bell like has been living with the shame of this moment and he's been trying to live this virtuous life and um, he's struggling because he's unable to like reach that standard that he set for himself. But Ellis is like saying, everybody does this. Our country does this. Does this. We're all living with shame and with lies that we tell ourselves. Um, it's all bullshit, right? Like it's another like it's like another look at nihilism from a different angle. Um but it's kind of shooting holes in Bell's whole thesis of how America used to be so amazing and how, you know, everybody didn't have to worry about anything in the thirties. And like, no, Ellis is talking about these t- same time periods where, you know, all this, all this shit was going down. So again, it's, it's interrogating a lot of the shit that, that Bell has been saying up to this point. So yeah, we finish with Bell retiring. He gives up and he goes into retirement and he's happy with his wife, but he fe- he's like a defeated man, right? At this point. And um, Chigurh doesn't get any comeuppance. And this is the way that it really deviates from a lot of Westerns, right? Like Chigurh wins, essentially. Um, he doesn't get to kill Llewellyn. He doesn't, we don't even get a confrontation between the two. Um, he gets to yeah. kill Llewellyn's you know, widow. So it's, it's this like inversion of the things that we would expect from a Western story. And that's why this isn't a Western. It's this like weird post-Western thing because this doesn't fit the genre at all. Um, right. and it's really fascinating and, and just like, what, what was your take on like, why, why did Cormac McCarthy go this route instead of like having Llewellyn and Chigurh have a showdown? Like what's I more, mean, what's interesting and like different about this that he wanted to explore? I just think that like that, because this is like your post Western neo, neo Western kind of thing where like you, like this happens with genre over time. Like you, there's so many stories that are told within that framework. 
And then these stories come out as a, as a reaction to that. So Cormac McCarthy wasn't interested in, like we've seen the battle between the two, the two leads before the antagonist and the protagonist. He wanted to tell a story that didn't have anything to do with that as much as it had to do with like more philosophical thoughts, like more digging into society and where America is at and like what it means to think about your morality as you get or your, your mortality as you get older and like what that does to you and the way that it makes you look back at the past as we've talked about like it's interesting that we lo- we're left with bell because it's like is he going to turn into uncle ellis or is he going to turn into like just continue down this path of himself like refusing to to confront the future like he just wants everything to be like it used to be yeah um and and like this idea of him like running away with this tail between he, he retires right and he's like i can't i can't beat trigger it's time for me to retire it's almost like th- that's also what that's also what Moss did. He gave the money away. He's like, I don't want the money. I realize I, I don't want the money. I want to go back to my normal life. And like we were talking about like people not really living in the present, like ultimately in that way, I think like we're able to see Bell make the decision to be like, let's I want to cut out of this and like just live a live a happy life when I while I still can and try to like, you know, be the better person that I can. Whereas Moss didn't have that opportunity. He wanted to do it, but he yeah. didn't have the opportunity. He essentially had signed his own death warrant, right? Like he he died the moment he decided to take that money. And I think there was even a moment of like knowledge when he did it. Like he realized that like this this was they would never stop everything. chasing him. Yeah. yeah. He would he would be chased for his whole life. And Bell, um I think Bell if Bell chases Shigur, he dies yeah. in the story. So I think that's the that's a decision making to, process there for him up. is he's like I'm giving up because I don't want you know I want to live my life with with his uh, with his wife uh, yeah. Loretta. Well, Loretta. It, yeah, and and Bell represents to me this like old school rugged individualism. This um, you know just I, I'm righteous in my morality. I see the world as black and white, and I'm sort of disgusted by the evil I see out there, and and it's up to me to like fight it. And he ends up, which is the like, old Western archetype, right? And then he ends up feeling like I'm over, like I can't. There's too much. I'm overwhelmed. Uh, I I just have to. I have to. I have to surrender to it. Yeah. But um, to me, it shows a failure of imagination on his part, uh, the ability to see the world in a different way. Like that. Mm-hmm. It, if you do see the world that way then I think it is, this is the logical conclusion, right? This this nihilist, like, nothing can be done, throw your hands in the air, despair. But if you let go of that view of the world, that us versus them, that um, individualist approach, and look at things more holistically, look at things from a societal level, look at things from, you know, uh, community and... Um, you know, not not pitting people against each other for all these different reasons. Um, it's not to say that it solves everything, but it's a it's it, that that line of thinking is not explored here. It's kind of just dismissed outright by Bell, and and instead it's like the only way he knows to view the world is the idea of a lawman versus versus the criminals. Um, and I think it's interesting that at the end of the book we get an example of him of of, of this guy getting put to death for a crime he didn't commit. And and mm-hmm. and he knows that he didn't commit it, yet he can't save him. And so it's a failure of the justice system, right at the end of the book, right. And so even that is shown to be false. Um, and and the ultimate thing he decides is like it all is meaningless, and um, I don't know what to do other than we're all gonna, it's all gonna go to hell. 
Um, whereas I, I feel like this is the jumping, this should be a jumping off point to how else can I view the world, you know? And, and that's where I guess I wish the novel led, but that's okay that it doesn't. And I think it's really interesting still, you know, as is. And, and ultimately I do like this book. Um, and I think I'm still going to give it five, five stars on Goodreads. You know, when I think about it, it's just written too well for anything else. Even though I do feel like I, I fundamentally disagree with a lot of it, it's still really interesting to see the arguments laid out in a compelling way and the, the thought processes laid out in a compelling way and to engage with these ideas. Like, I want people to be thinking about this. I don't know that I agree with a lot of the messages people are going to take away from it, but I was mm-hmm. able to find something in there to where I felt like I would, you know, I'm a, I'm a better person for having read this book in a weird way, even though it's so dark and twisted. Well, you can read something like this and be like, oh, I disagree with that. That reinforces my way of thinking in yeah. a way that like, I know that I've now confronted these other ways of thinking, which is yeah. what Bell's doing throughout the novel. He's like trying to confront other ways of thinking, but ultimately kind of falls back on what he thinks, what's like his archetype. Yeah. And like us as people, we can see it and be like, oh, like I wouldn't have done that. I would have done this. Like you said, you would go yeah. turn to the community and try to like band together. And maybe Bell ultimately is a is a coward in that way. And so he's returning to that cowardice because he's unwilling to take up the fight and to to um not to take up the fight, but to like find a new way to tackle these problems outside of his mm-hmm. framework. And yeah. instead, he's just going to surrender. Um, and that's that's kind of the way I view it in the end, at least. But I, I'm sure many people would disagree with me <laughs> and will disagree mm-hmm. with me when they hear this. Um, but that, that's what I got from the book. And I'm very excited to go into the film next week and um, revisit a lot of this stuff, talk about the ways in which I think the movie is even more subtle in some ways. Like it, it, it doesn't sort of lay out the themes as directly as it did in the book, or at least doesn't mm-hmm. get into them as deeply. Um while still being very uh, faithful in, in a lot of ways. So I, I'm definitely interested and excited to get into that next week. Yeah, I really can't wait. Um, so here at the end of the episode, we wanted to thank Sarah H. for being a Patreon supporter. Um, our patrons are able to keep this podcast going uh, through the donations. So, you know, a heartfelt thank you to everyone who supports us that way. If you wanted to support us in a way that doesn't require any money at all, leave us a rating and review on whatever app you listen to us on today. Um, we would love to have the additional, uh, you know, uh, words of encouragement that can be out there in the world and hopefully get some more listeners in on the fun. Yeah, absolutely. And make sure to follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Oh, and hey, we just had an episode uh, where James and I were interviewed by Tyler of the Between Lewis and Lovecraft podcast, where we talk about like our uh, the the creations of Ink to Film, like what was the initial ideas behind it, and then James and I struggle like hell to like come up with favorite authors and favorite directors for a while. So you can hear us squirm as we as we try. Um, It was a lot of fun, and, and I think that episode just came out. So check out Between Lewis and Lovecraft and and look for that correspondence episode uh, with ink to film and thank you to ross bugden for the use of our intro and outro music all right uh cohen brothers next week which is uh you know filmmakers we have not talked about yet and i'm definitely very excited to get to uh and until next time thanks for listening mm-hmm.